their cadence. So if their cadence is like, you know, 160, 165, we got lots of room to get that person faster. Because remember, running is only two things. It's cadence times stride length. Those two make speed. However you achieve them, all of that is irrelevant, but it, how many steps you take and how long is each step? Those are the two things I look at every time I get data back from a quality workout. Welcome to the Run Form Podcast. I'm Bobby McGee, running mechanics expert. And I'm Matt Condola, your run-specific strength coach. Matt and I have been working together for almost a decade on some of the top athletes in the world, and we've decided to share that process with you guys. Hey, Matt, what's going on? It's good to see you again, man. Always good to see you, Bobby. Excited about our new topics of conversation. I know we've been talking for a while about how we can start to incorporate more of stride into our users' um, training. And I think this is going to be a lot of fun, but maybe we should tell people what that's really all about. Yeah, absolutely. So maybe even explain to some some of our listeners what, what stride is. Stride is just a, a running power meter, probably one of the most most prominent ones at, at the moment. Uh, they've been working on it the longest. They keep refining their algorithms and so on. So just for in general, Stride is a, a little foot pod uh, that you put on your foot. Forget about it. It doesn't even necessarily need a smartwatch. If you want to utilize your power number while you're running, you, you, know, you want to use a smartwatch, obviously. Uh, but you can also just use it in a race or something if you don't race for the watch and you can look at the data afterwards, which is really cool. Now, the difference between uh, Stride and, and other power meters, I'm not even sure how necessarily how they work. I've been working with Stride for a number of years now, is, is that it's not a GPS device. It's not c- connected to a global positioning satellite, right? It has five um, devices and a ch- on the chip inside of the of the of the little pod that you put on your foot and that's an accelerometer magnetometer a um uh what are what are the other things in it's got an anemometer so it measures wind resistance from the front and it has uh i don't know if i said accelerometer um so all of these things are actually measuring data from each set not only in the direction that your foot is going all right, but it measures when your foot decelerates, when it hits the ground, it measures when your foot accelerates off the ground. So, you know, even if you're just using it for, for pace and distance, it's an extremely accurate device in, in that regard. And, uh, you know, in alignment with what we're going to be talking about today is what, what do you get from, from a device like that? And you, so you get three things, three main areas of, of, of uh, information, right? You get performance status, so it gives you splits, it gives you moving time. It gives you distance. It gives you pace, which is you know what a GPS does. Uh, but uh, if you look at research done on the device, it's far more accurate in that regard. Then it gives you physiological data, right? That the algorithms are designed or physiology. So they looked at lactate threshold. They looked at VO2 max, and they designed those algorithms around that. And to be quite similar to to cycling, because cycling has that pure power number, right? So what's so exciting? there is is that you um, are getting an an external data point as opposed to an internal data point like glucose or heart rate or core temperature uh, and that kind of thing so it's just saying this is this is what you're putting out it doesn't matter what the surface is you're running on what the conditions are how hot or how cold it is this is your this is your power number right so that's pretty cool 
And then uh, the part that we're going to work on today, which is the mechanical data, right? So what are your legs and your feet doing that is producing that speed, right? And so today we're going to be talking about specifically cadence, but in the following weeks, we're going to be talking about ground contact time. We're going to be talking about leg spring stiffness. We're going to be talking about vertical oscillation, how much you go up and down. And we're going to be talking about stride length. Those, those are the, the primary ones that, that we are going to touch on. And uh, um, you get that data as well. So from, from your running that day, you're getting that performance data, you're getting the physiological data, but you're also getting mechanical data, which falls right in the field with what you and I specialize in with run form, right? So how do we impact these numbers positively? What is a good number? What is a bad number? How does this number relate to me personally as an athlete? So so that, that's where we're going today. Yeah, and I would say too, for people who don't have stride or they're maybe considering getting something like stride, but we're going to be talking a lot about what we can do to be able to work with, let's say, our oscillation, right? And how we can start to work on drills and mechanics that are going to support better glide, if you will, right? And so what I want to just reiterate here is that if we don't have a stride monitor, that's something we can consider and maybe make a decision on if uh, you're listening to this and, and realize that it is something that's valuable enough for you to make that that purchase. We have no affiliation with that, but it's more to me about also just getting the information to know how you can improve your running, even without a monitor, taking this information and uh, putting it into your toolbox. Yeah, yeah. Um, in, in the show notes, we'll put a little discount as well that if people are interested, I have an arrangement with a company that they'll give 15% discount on a device if people are interested to. It's Bobby McGee coaching with a, with a lot of caps in it, but we'll put it in the notes. <laughs> yeah, we All just right. were talking to a marathon runner last week. He's training for the Chicago Marathon. And I know that with him, I like to bring up um, an example like him because he's definitely more of a perceived effort kind of person he has to definitely you know, work a little bit more on his autonomy for his running and so you did suggest to him that he gets this stride even just for you as the coach to look at these numbers to be able to give him better feedback and so I know he's going to start to use that but it's it's going to be kind of that relationship where we see what we have to work on a little bit more in his case his cadence is his gathering is quite good and we just want to be able to work a little bit more on how we're covering that ground more effectively for uh let's say 16 615 pace rather in the last 10k of the the race and so that's i think where that kind of data can be really useful right bobby yeah no exactly that's that's what's so exciting right so we haven't necessarily accelerated our understanding of running as fast as we have accelerated our ability to get data from running. So that's what's so exciting to me, right? We just, we expanding uh, two things, right? We expanding the power of the microscope. So we're getting a lot of granular data that we can impact. And we're also expanding the size of the telescope, right? So our, our global in terms of looking at what we're looking for is is so fascinating, right? So um, the sprint coach is all caught up in pure speed, right? How how fast 
can this runner go over 60 meters, 40 yards, 100 meters, right? And so if you look at the time spans of those things, you can see it doesn't fall into the world of physiology. And you look at most of the training in the, in the world of, of endurance, they don't have a lot of studying on, on mechanics, right? The, the concept of mechanical efficiency is pretty new in the world of, of running mechanics, and it's pretty accidental too, and it's always been around form of its function. If you run enough, your gait will economize, right? Which is true, but with our triathletes and with our weekend warriors, often breakdown comes way before adaptation, right? And so we tr we're trying to short circuit that. So it's kind of exciting that you measure that, right? Because if you look at, you know, research uh, about speed and about running mechanics, it's always done in kind of like a, a fresh environment, right? And all of our work is done in a interrupted, fatigued environment. So, you know, what becomes possible is, is we can we can do this miraculous kind of work if somebody has a good gait to start with, right? Now, all you need to do is optimize the training, the strength and conditioning and that sort of thing, you know? And then when you say to me, you know, Bobby, that's your kind of field, but, you know, if you see the, like, for example, our last work with, with uh, university level, uh, you know, with division one level athletes, we analyze their their gait, right? And in this particular case, we had an athlete that had a fallen out the bottom cadence, right? Just like a cadence that was utterly not sustainable, right? And you were like just chomping at the bit to get at that athlete. And so was I, right? And we, we were working on a hierarchy. I worked with the athlete, then you worked with the athlete, and then I finished off with it. And we had this massive improvement in cadence. And I think it was like two weeks later, we got a video from the coach and the coach saying to us, actually one from the assistant coach and the assistant coach saying to us, oh my God, this is not the same athlete that showed up, right? And so in terms of fitness, those kind of changes could not have occurred in a two-week period. And it might've been less than a two-week period, right? But suddenly the gait was completely different. The cadence was like off the charts. And that was a case of back to the sports psychology too, the athletes understanding of what running was, was also impacted. Like, oh, okay, it can feel that easy. It's supposed to feel that easy. I'm going faster. What the hell's going on? You know, and you did your magic. I did my stuff. And we ended up getting an athlete who now is less prone to injury, running considerably faster and being able to sustain a given velocity for a much longer period of time. Yeah, I just was thinking about the athlete, junior elite athlete that, we worked with about a month ago, we gave him sort of a new blueprint for his movement and also his mechanical loading. And same thing, within a month, we're not really getting that much stronger, but his numbers certainly went up. And I do look at power economy with those type of numbers where initially the first 20 seconds look great with an athlete, right? By the time you get to 40 seconds, now you're starting to see some disruption, right? You're starting to see some disassociation. You're starting to see some leakage, if you will, right? And then by the time you go from 40 to 60 seconds, that's what really reveals the truth with uh, these type of uh, relative strength index tests that I, I tend to give. And yet, when we look at a three-week period of time, we can see now he's able to hold those positions for double and triple the time. So 
it really is more of a neuromuscular re-education, which should be really encouraging for a lot of people to realize that if we want to get more out of our glutes and we have those connected dots working more efficiently, now we're not bailing out. And all it really came down to with a particular athlete, like the one we're talking about here is just changing that pelvic position a little bit so that we're restoring more of the capacities, the ability to be able to really recruit the glutes in the first place and use that anti-gravity muscle more efficiently. So it's exciting to me because it's not as big of a buildup or long as long of a turnaround as I think one may think. Yeah, exactly. I'm so excited when you see research, right? that uses the physiological model to measure mechanical improvement. You know, so in other words, you're saying, okay, it's fine. You improve their cadence, you improve their stride length, you reduce their vertical oscillation at a given velocity, you increase their leg spring stiffness, but I've got an athlete that still can't break five for the mile, or I've got an athlete that still can't break 40 minutes for 10K, you know? So uh, when you start seeing that, you know, my first example that comes to mind for me is the work that Jens Bangsbow did with with the potassium pump, right? He first met, he did a time trial. He did a three k time trial, and then he did a sixteen k time trial, right? And then he did his intervention. I think it was twelve weeks, but I, I I don't recall. But he did his intervention in terms of the uh, the the k pump workouts. You know, the thirty second work with max recovery, right? And then he went back and he went, okay, time trial three k. All right, whoa, quite a dramatic improvement. Um, 16k time trial 10 miles way better improvement than even over 3k like what's going on here we're doing power explosive stuff with this athlete no improvement in vo2 max no improvement in lactate threshold which are the gold standards of determining what that you know improvement if you improve those numbers then your performance should improve no improvement in those regards but a improvement in performance so that's what we're looking for right in our interview with with michael erickson um, we saw the same thing uh, Bobby, if you can show more direct linear connections to improving these numbers that show performance, you know, then the floodgates will be open, right? So it's 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 so fantastic that we, we're getting to that world. So you spoke about, you know, all of these little bits that show up quite quickly in performance, but you look at the work that you do with breathing and the work that you do with, uh, you know, with expiratory and inspiratory musculature, right? Like breathing musculature and then breathing patterns themselves. And then you look, and in my world, at, at how pacing negatively or positively impacts performance, right? And how that learning of pacing can come into that. But then we've also seen increases in cadence or decreases. In, you know, the example that you brought up of this marathon runner that we're working with, his cadence at his race pace velocity is too high. So it's not going to be sustainable over that long period of time. So now we have to reduce his cadence, right? And now that falls slap bang into both our worlds again, right? And uh, so if, if, you, if you're looking at the, the research on posture, for example, the same thing, right? What is your posture in the beginning when you don't have any problems? When these numbers start to go up, what changed? I was just on a phone call with a client yesterday who's starting to build up to race in, in, in nationals, age group nationals in, in a sprint distance triathlon, asking me, uh, you know, what's going on here? This felt harder and harder, but my, my, my heart rate numbers were the same, et cetera, et cetera. There was a slight de decrease in, in pace, but these are five-minute efforts. So when this individual is going to run a 5K off the bike, 
So I said, okay, look, notice in, sec in repetition number two, repetition number three, there was a precipitous drop-off in your cadence, right? So why was that happening? And then we were able to determine, oh, those were postural changes. You were more and more upright as the repetition went by, and therefore your cadence was slowing down because you weren't overcoming inertia, right? And we could see that if we didn't have those cadence numbers, we wouldn't have been able to determine that. And if we didn't have the look at the, how the posture changed, you know, going more upright towards the end, we wouldn't have known that. But we have research that shows that's what causes stitches as well, right? So it's fascinating that when your microscope is bigger, you can refine your interventions and you can make these little gains in short periods of time, you know, that are so exciting. You know, if there's time, we're going to speak about a, a client that I had that needs, because she's been compacting her shoes too much at the back, she's now, she's running in a, in a, in a low ramp shoe, right? So it's, it's only got a very small ramp. And so we're going to put a heel lift in there so that she can get onto the forefoot, you know? So she's basically running uphill with every step that she takes just because of the shoe, shoe structure, her gait style, and her, her um, you know, her... Heel, the fact that she she's a heel striker and she is now not compressing the front of that shoe to best effect. Yeah, and when when it comes to the conversation about cadence, um, I'll add in sort of what I feel like I can contribute in this conversation about a few different scenarios for people listening. Like with the athlete I was describing earlier, the junior elite. So he wins his race a few days ago off of a few weeks of just mapping out some specific needs that he had, right? And with the marathon runner, we're talking about being able to get better recruitment of his glute. With myself, I'm looking at a longer period of time, probably I had three months of doing run form where eventually my cadence really started to increase because I'm guilty of being a ground gulper, right? So a few yeah, yeah, scenarios. Yeah. And and with me, I've been doing it such a long time. It did take me a few months to really sort of get that more of that uh that feeling, if you will, or to be able to have it more visceral. So I didn't want to have to actually think about it. But what eventually happened with me is that my left shoulder started leading. And because of that, I I had better recruitment of what we call our posterior oblique chain. And in other words, my right lat would start connecting with my left glute more efficiently. And that was something that I found was really effective for me. Again, with my tree trauma on my left side of my spine, that is a, a variable that really made a big difference for me. It just took a while to really start to be able to feel that, but it did happen. And with the athlete that I'm talking about as a marathon runner, he's got a posterior, or excuse me, an anterior pelvic tilt to where we cannot get that full extension out of his hip. And because of that, once we started to just work on some drills for the anterior oblique chain, so that's where we are talking about your right shoulder, let's say going from that external oblique and then into your opposite internal oblique, and then down into your groin. That is a method that I like to do with something like the dead bug, where we start to really just work on that, feel that, 
but getting the hip into a more posterior oblique chain and really recruiting that chain together. So these are variables that we're going to talk about in more depth in this series and how we can accomplish these things. And then, yes, be able to look at the data from something like Stride and see those improvements because, of course, what we can measure, we can manage. Yeah, yeah. Um, on that note, I was reminded when you and I started working together way back, right? Way back, we had this conversation about glute recruitment, right? And I've seen it in the world of golf, I've seen it in the world of, of jumping, and, and seen it in the world of sprinting as well as it pertains to us in running. That that people don't understand glute activation as such, right? It's like, firstly, you, you, you wouldn't be able to stand up in a row in the supermarket if your glutes weren't working to keep you upright, right? But in terms of going back to the sprint world, the, the main muscle, the main engine muscle in sprinting is your glutes, absolutely your glutes, right? And you look at the significant differences between sprinting and distance running, right? And a lot of people do this kind of reductionist thing. Okay, distance running is just sprinting slower with the shortest stride length, right? But it's got it's a completely different gate, right? There's there's different recruitment patterns, all sorts of stuff. But for people to understand, for example, you can understand that once your leg is vertical underneath you, it's never going to be completely vertical because it's not going to be straight when it's underneath you. It's going to be flexed, like right? you're loading the quad, you're loading the soleus, you're loading the gastroc, you're loading the arch, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But when it's vertical underneath you. That's the only time that the glute can actually start firing functionally in the running game. It can't fire when your knee's ahead of your hip. Your knee has to be below your hip for the glute to activate, right? And so that's, again, the beauty of, of what you and I are up to, right? It's like, you know what? Your glutes fire beautifully, but in terms of leg extension, your hip flexors are not allowing your glute to fire functionally, all right? So there's your first thing. Now you go triathlete, and now you go uh, long course triathlete, and now you go non-draft where aero becomes very, very important. And now the athlete is shutting that hip joint all the time. And when they start running, they don't have the skill, the conditioning uh, to be able to extend that leg behind them, even if they wanted to, because uh, the hip flexor won't let it get there, right? So you, that, you get running with your butt in a bucket. And now the majority of your work is being done by your quads that have already been smashed to smithereens on the bike. And the old glute is hanging out there saying, give me work, give me work. And it's getting no work to do. And so that goes up the chain again, right? And that goes to the core strength. If the core is not holding that pelvis stable, it doesn't matter how well the glute works. It's not going to propel you forward because, you know, you've just got this, you know, this bowl up on a, on a tiny little pedestal right and it's and it's not able to withhold the force that your glutes have into the ground anyway because your core is failing or your core has failed yeah and i there's a couple of things as you're talking i wanted to at least bring up in conversation when i mention anterior pelvic tilt don't think that's a bad thing <laughs> yeah it's it's kind of yeah. like a foot strike like we we're not telling you that you should change your foot strike right yeah what what we are talking about is improving that position so your kinematics work better for you, right? And so I may have somebody who can now just normalize their position by going from, let's say, seven degrees of an anterior pelvic tilt and getting them to closer to five degrees. 
that is something that even visually it's hard to see, but of course we can see it in the data, we can see it in the gate, uh, especially an eye like yours, but that anterior pelvic tilt is a wonderful thing for recoil, for example, right? So a lot of athletes will have that tilt. It's just whether or not we are looking at that um, bailing out, if you will, of the hip, right? If they're not able to get that full extension for their kinematics, then that's an area that we do like to work on. But I just wanted to point that out because how you're built is how you're built. And it's probably one of your best gifts. Even we just want to use it more effectively. Yep. And in typical, uh, Matt and Bobby fashion, we haven't done enough explaining of what cadence is. And here we are back in the weeds, relevant weeds, important weeds that people are going, Oh, okay. Um, how am I going to utilize that? <laughs> right. So, so cadence is a number that's basically measuring how many steps you take uh, in a minute, right? So that's left and right, you know? So that's why numbers like 180 to 200 and, you know, come up in, in the conversation. Myself, because it's easier for me to work the numbers and so on, I rather work on stride rate, uh, but then most of the devices are giving you cadence, including stride is giving you cadence, right? So that's every step that you take in a minute. Yeah, how many are those? Stride rate is left foot to left foot and right foot to right right foot. So it's exactly half. You know, so if you if you're running at, you know, two hundred steps a minute, your your stride rate is a hundred. Just so so people understand that and that it's over a minute, right? An important thing to speak about in cadence is understanding how inherent it is. You know, everybody has a natural cadence that they fall to. Right. So I remember years back, they did some cadence experiment or rev experiments with Lance Armstrong when he was, a, you know, when he was a cyclist, right? Before all the nonsense started, right? And so they would force him to do some low gear stuff and he could do some really powerful strength stuff at, at 45 revs, right? So in other words, every time his right foot or his left foot gets to a certain point in the, in the, in the pedal cycle, right? And then, uh, they would make him climb up Pike's Peak, right? So he's ride his bike up Pike's Peak and some some of those places really, really steep slopes. He would get down into those, you know, 35, 45, just enough to keep the bike balanced. But even in the easiest gear, the cadence is real, real slow, right? And then they put him on a downhill and so on uh, and maxes out his gearing at the back and he can easily get that up to... 160, 165. I think he even got up as 180, and then these track cyclists can get get higher than that. I think they can go into the 220. So that's a cadence of 440, you know. So they can get really up high. Uh, but when Lance is left to his own devices on the flat with most cyclists, he's cruising his bike when he's not thinking about it. His natural cadence was about, I think, somewhere between 98 and 104. Like he just should spin those pedals. So often you'll see somebody coming from a, a basketball background or, a, you know, that, that kind of background. And the sweet spot that they find on the bike is could be in the, in the 60s or the 70s. So they're getting very peripherally fatigued very quickly, but they're getting the most power and the most speed out of their bike at that. So that people understand when you change your cadence on the bike or you change your cadence in running, it's a very large neuromuscular component. So I'll often see in running people change their cadence with the interventions that we offer them, right? And when, when that happens is the heart rate goes up at the same velocity. 
And that's that neurological part. So it's a really conscious, it's going through a different process in the brain, and you have to be patient to habituate it. And then pretty soon you have less, uh, you have more mechanical economy because your cadence is higher and your heart rate will start coming down until your heart rate is the same or better at the same at the same output you know so uh you know that's that's also something one one who uh consider but ironically like the two examples we've spoken about today like the example of your own running right you one of those people that vertically oscillate too little because you're a ground what did you call yourself a ground eater or something gulper yeah i'm a gulper yeah ground you're a ground gulper right uh and that's very rare most people as they fatigue their groin fatigues they're not able to maintain their stride length, and so their vertical oscillation goes up. And we'll speak about this when we speak about vertical oscillation, but it's important to know that vertical oscillation, like cadence, is related to speed. So if you're running hill repeats of 30 seconds, your cadence is automatically going to be higher. So this athlete that I worked with yesterday is saying, wow, my cadence was so high, and I'm saying, wait a minute, your cadence was high because you've been training at at uh, around about 11 minute mile pace all right and now you're doing four by five minutes and you're going really well you know you're going 8 50 9 10 pace for five minutes so that's considerably faster than your training than your endurance training pace so your cadence will automatically be up you can't go you i've solved my cadence problem right um so that that's something to look at as well cadence is associated with velocity right cadence is also associated with leg length you know, so we have a client that has a re- reasonably short legs relative to their torso length, right? And they have a lower cadence. Our job is to up that cadence because there's not going to be so much to be gained by them increasing their stride length. That will have a cap on it before their cadence. So if their cadence is like, you know, 160, 165, we got lots of room to get that person faster. Because remember, running is only two things. It's Cadence times uh, times stride length. Those two make speed. However you achieve them, all of that is irrelevant. But it, how many steps you take and how long is each step? Those are the two things I look at every time I get data back from a quality workout. All right. So the cadence went up. Let me go and have a look over here. Ah, but the stride length went down. So it, it came out to the same pace, you know. Yeah. Or, you know so that, that's something important to look at. Add on to that, Matt. Yeah, I was just going to say, I think... It might be nice to talk a little bit about uh, quote unquote optimal cadence because well I know the research from Jack Daniels where he was obviously looking at anywhere from the 800 up to the marathon and seeing what these elites were doing and that's at least where I found the original numbers that we look at today so often. Yep, yep. But uh, the client you just described, I mean that's me. I have a longer torso. In relation to my height at six foot two, my femur is not very long. And so I got really good at golfing grounds. And maybe that was a necessity for me uh, for a time as I was growing and on the track and trying to run a 10K in under 30 minutes. You know, that was something that I ended up really relying on my ability to do that. But for now, I'm really happy when my cadence is right around uh, where I should say, that 160 number right so that's that for me is a good overall uh goal so i'm at the bottom end of that and if i'm being honest a lot of my running it's 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 lower than that and so 
I just want to point out that these are just numbers, but what I am really happy about is that my cadence has increased about uh, roughly 5% or so. It took me a period of time to do that, but it, it's natural. It's not choppy. It's not something I'm trying to do out there. It's just, I'm just doing it. So I thought it'd be nice to talk a little bit about quote unquote optimal cadence and what people are striving to do, because I feel like some people are trying to get too high in their cadence at times, things like that. Yeah, I think there's two important things to say there, right? Is this one is cadence is quite natural to the individual. And our interventions with cadence don't mess, mess with the natural cadence of an individual. We would never say your cadence is too low, you need to move it up. We would give interventions that would move up their cadence, all right? And, and that's important for people to, if they find out that they're at the lower end of, of what they can do cadence-wise, just thinking, i got to move my feet quicker is a recipe for disaster. If you become in, uneconomical, you introduce risk in terms of injury, uh, and that economy part is, is mostly shown by, you know, you're just operating at a higher heart rate. But if you do want to look at those numbers, you look at something like, you know, 130, 140 for the average person is too low. Mm-hmm. All right, that is too low. So now bearing in the, back of, in the back of your mind is the faster I run, the higher my cadence will be, right? So when I'm doing my easiest stuff, that would be too low. All right, so anything you know, uh, in the sort of, you know, 150, 155, 165, which is low, but is okay. Especially if you're running like 13-minute miles or something like that, right? It's you, you To get your cadence up, your stride length would be like half a meter, which would be which would be suboptimal, right? And then on the top end, it's about sustainability, right? So on the top end, what I've seen is, uh, you know, the females, for example, in Ironman or in, in, in Kona, in, the, in that heat and so on, cadence is a great friend when it's hot because it generates less kinetic energy than, than, than a slower cadence where your ground contact time is higher, right? So you'll see those females can go 220. So they can take 110 steps uh, per minute with one foot, right? Um, but now you have a speed limit. You know, those those athletes, for example, at 110, they're going to run like, for example, they're going to run like 35, 36 minutes for 10K. To run faster for 10K, they're going to have to lengthen their stride length because they topped out. It doesn't mean to say that when those athletes do hill repeats or they do 200s on the track or they're doing some sort of speed development work or speed endurance work, that their cadence couldn't go up higher, right, to go to 30, 240. It's just that for half an hour or so of work, they're not going to be able to sustain much higher than 220. So there's that range, hyperrunner, leg length, and so on. Interestingly enough, and you and I have spoken about this before, uh, very tall runners with very long legs don't have the strength, uh, the, the integrity around the pelvis for the duration of time required in an endurance event to sustain a stride length that would be uh, this would match up to their to their leg length, right? So they will start getting a higher cadence the taller they get or the longer their legs get because they just can't. You can imagine how their stride angle, how hard it would be to sustain their stride angle. You know, if they like got a you know a, a pelvis that's twenty eight inches or thirty two inches or something like that, their waist, right? And they have these very long legs and they're trying to run 
a 10K with a well over two meter stride length and they're trying to sustain that for 30 minutes is just not doable, right? So you'll notice that very tall individuals, individuals with very long legs, when they sprint, they will have this incredible stride length, like, you know, uh, but when they do distance runs, they have actually quite a short stride length to try and support their pelvis and make it sustainable. It's interesting. Yes, it is. Yeah. And just to make a note on if you're trying to increase your cadence a little bit the way I was, something as simple as jump rope, having that, the, that rhythm and just getting that control of the rope. In other words, if I have my left shoulder, I mentioned before, I had to get that to lead more efficiently. If that shoulder wasn't stabilizing and wasn't helping to keep that rope centered over my head and under my feet, then I would trip up more often, right? Or I would lose that rhythm. So everything from my shoulder down through my center, out uh, and, and down my peripherals, right? What, what I'm looking at there is just getting some really good rhythm and even just looking at running in place with that jump rope, those kind of factors. But I like to look at a cadence of at least 180 in a minute when we're talking about uh, jump rope. That's a, that's a good little start for somebody wondering, how do I increase that cadence? How do I get that to, uh, to evolve a little bit more in, in my training? And then, of course, in run form, we have a lot of banded dynamic drills that are designed to do just that. So uh, that's an example of just increasing your cadence a little bit. And I'll finish with my example here, why that 5% difference mattered, even though my cadence is going to be a lot lower than most. For example, running that Odyssey that I talked about, where I had to run six legs about 33 miles or so. A lot of um, uphill and really steep downhill. In fact, uh, a couple of my legs had some really steep downhill sections, three of them actually, which, you know, again, getting that cadence just a little bit higher. I, the next day, I just, I was really not sore at all. And that was, uh, to me, very different than in the past when I would race. I'd have a lot more muscle breakdown, a lot more soreness. And the last leg of that Odyssey when I typically, I think, would be pretty spent. In other words, representing that last part of a race, I, I felt pretty good. So, you know, there, it, makes, it makes a big difference just even these small changes you can make uh, with your programming. Yeah, and I'm very, very glad you brought that up. But just to stay with where you finished, right, just remember that the power and the power to weight ratio thing. So you have a very long stride length. That's what makes you a, an effective runner, right? So you know, go back in the past, you look at uh, triple Olympic champion. I think he's got three goals, two ten thousands, one, no, one ten thousand, two five thousand, Mo Farah, right? Very, very slight, but relatively tall individual. So he does, his, his body mass is very low. So when he races 10,000 and 5,000 meters, he has a relatively low cadence. Gwen Jorgens is another example of that, right? So he's a very slight individual, but very tall have very, very long legs, and they have very good power-to-weight ratio. They can carry that, right, for that period of time. So Mo takes, you know, a little under 27 minutes to run a 10K. He can sustain a cadence of 192 with this impossibly long stride length for, for most individuals, all right? And the same with Gwen, can sustain the, the, has enough power to sustain the lower stride rate, 
right? Um, but has this very, very long stride length. But that's that's a key thing for coaches to work on is to realize, is that a sustainable cadence for the distance that this athlete is preparing themselves for? You know, so if you look at, at Mo Farah's cadence when he runs the marathon, it's higher, but not sufficiently high. You know, one of the darlings of American distance running uh, bronze medalist from Athens, Dina Drosen, there's, there's a popular story with Dina that she struggled to run 100 miles a week, and she had a cadence of about, I think, 96 was a cadence when I measured it in Sacramento in the 10,000 Olympic trials. Um, and then she went and did a whole lot, a lot of short heels uh, repeats. And these short heel repeats brought her cadence up, right, from the same reason you were talking about, that kind of rope jumping intervention and stuff like that, all right? Um, and then with that higher cadence that she had developed across the board of her various intensities, she was much more capable of sustaining very high mileages, 110, 120 miles a week. And the result of that, you know, in some part led to her being, you know, running the American record, running under 220 for the marathon, winning a bronze medal in the Athens Olympic Games, you know, against the world record holder who has a much lower cadence and, and happened to have failed in, in that particular race. So very interesting. What I want to add to that is, so you were talking in terms of improving your cadence, you were talking about muscle neurology. You were talking about a, uh, you know, uh, a, a neuro connection there, right? But we also got to know that, post that posture makes a huge difference, right? So if you have an effective running posture, your running is reactive to your posture, reactive to your center of mass, reactive to the, reactive to the surface you're running on, right? So that increases your cadence because you have to put your foot down or fall flat on your face. That grabs another part of your of your mechanism, your neurology and your lower lumbar, lumbar spine because your body doesn't care if you're in that position, got to get a foot on the ground and the timing is all synced up, right? But if you're upright, you can mess around with your cadence because you're not going to fall over. And so now your running becomes a little bit more intentional and it's not a good idea to think about lift my knee up extend they'll do that kind of thing the next thing is the kinetic chain right is just that plain old elbow angle if you tend to run with those hands low i don't care how good your posture is i don't care how your neurology is if your hands are way down low right and you're breaking your glass tutu you're going to have a slow cadence you're going to be sluggish you're going to be heavy on the ground your round contact time is going to be up all of those things are going to suck eggs but if you fix the kinetic changes, bend, bend the elbows, book that cadence will come up automatically, all right? And then the last thing is running skill, right? A lot of people believe and they bring this, and that's what we were talking about at university um, athlete that we were working with. A lot of people believe that running is about stride length. We all remember our mothers saying, boy, you've got long legs, you're going to be a great runner. You know what I'm saying? And so... Um, understanding that that running is a skill, right? And that running is not reaching and it's not trying to cover ground with a step. It's they, There are no front end mechanics in effective running that is on the ground. If you're on the ground and your front end mechanics are great, you're in deep trouble, right? So back end mechanics is where it happens, right? So you're trying to do everything you need to do with front end mechanics so that it's all done in the air, right? And so for people to understand that running is pushing, it's much easier to push a car because you've got your shoulders forward, you've got your hips back, and you've got your point of contact way back of that. 
and you're pushing the car, right? That's how you run. You should push. If you're trying to pull the car, you're in trouble, right? You, you're you're going to fail in the peripherals, okay? So there are no more pullers in distance running. There are only pushers, right, in terms of successful distance running. Occasionally, I'll be out on the trail and I'll see somebody who's a puller and I'll go, man, welcome to 1957, right? This just like... You're making life hard for yourself and you're probably injured a lot, you know. Or my wife would say when we're driving somewhere, she'll see a run at the side of the road and she says, oh, Annie, can't you stop and give him a card? You know, because he's really making a mid-speed. So there is a skill component, right? And what you, the picture you have in your head of how you run counts. And if that picture is, is an older-fashioned picture or an inefficient picture, it's going to hurt you. And I think that's a good place for me to go all say, okay, base is covered. <laughs> Yeah, and I think we've covered a lot today about cadence, maybe even broken through some myths, right? Because I think uh, when we look at some of the recommendations out there to improve cadence, uh, to me, we're forcing an adaption. We're learning to do things that are really kind of choppy and not necessarily going to get those back-end mechanics going, right? So I don't want to throw stones at other programs to make ours look better. But when you look at our program, we are always focused on those back-end mechanics. And that is why a lot of times we do use the bands, right? And I think it's uh, a combination of having that uh, posterior activation or that uh, posterior position where we can have that running flow out of us along with the run form drills and the banded dynamics are going to complement that drill. And the DMDs are really going to be a great way to set the table for success for that day, which leads me into, I think, our sort of closing topic. We did have a few questions about our roll-up drill. And I think it'd be fun to talk about that, Bobby, and how this relates a little bit to Cadence today. So in our program, we have one of your DMDs, or uh, their foot roll-ups, and I'll let you yep, yep. explain that a little bit further, but why we do them in the first place, I think this fits well in with our conversation today. Yep, yep. I was listening to one of the greatest golfers in the world the other day, Padraig Harrington, and he was using other players to show what he learned from them, right? And obviously, roll-ups have been around for a very long time. Foot roll-ups have been a long time, heel to toes, whatever you want to call them, right? Um, But if you just sit down and think, what are you asking your foot to do, right? You know that the arch has got that trampoline effect. You're trying to load that arch, right? And there's this complex set of tendons that start, you know, under under the toes, but then there's a big connection also under the met heads, right? And those tendons have a high degree of flexibility, right? And so you want to be able to load those tendons. But if you're in a very structured shoe and, you know, you have a, a, a shoe that you use at work and it's a very, a very kind of structured shoe, and then you come out and you wear a less structured shoe or even a super shoe, right? The super shoe is trying to ex- exaggerate what you're trying to do with your arch, right? So it's you want to bend the big toe. If you don't bend the big toe, then you don't have a windlass effect. You're letting air out of your basketball. You want to be able to load your arch. That's why you have to pronate to load your arch. We all see these slow motion pictures on on social media of Elliot Kipchoge coming down on the lateral side of his foot and having this tremendous pronation moment. 
That pronation moment is tremendously loading those tendons in the arch of the foot for that elastic return, flexing that big toe. That's what those movements are for, right? If the roll-ups, if anything to start with, is as they load up, progressively load up that arch, right? They also mimic the foot action, all right? So landing on the outside of the heel, going over the strong side of your foot, which is closer to the ground in that fifth metatarsal, and then rolling across the arch of the foot as the arch loads to those first and second met head, all right? So you can see that roll-ups are an exaggeration. It's a mobility and elastic loading activity that is slowly transitioning the foot from being a static, non-functional thing that's stuck in a rigid shoe, especially with triathletes in the cycling shoe, into being a much more dynamic, athletic, foot action and it's very functional because it mimics that start at the outside roll across the outside of the instep transition over to the big toe but not too much yeah all right so it's uh that that's uh, that's my primary reason for the roll-ups it's an activator it's a mobilizer it's a functional instigator yeah and i think that's one of those movements where we can put that a link to that in the show notes an example of that if you're confused as to way that actually looks but this is something that i always like to work on first myself just before i go out that's one of the dmds that's tried and true for me i i always get sort of that initial feeling like when i'm coming up i'm really trying to get that quick action up and then i'm trying to get back down beating gravity down as quickly as i can but the feeling I get from it when I get done is that now the next drill I do, I have that spring. I'm, I'm a lot more springy in my Achilles. I feel like I have that loading. And I do have a history with my right Achilles where I feel like I need a little bit of that sort of workup or that priming, if you will, for my performance. So it's a go-to for me yeah, just, you know, I've incorporated it now as part of my dynamics is is uh, from watching the elite athletes that are working with both of us doing drills that I've, you know, have less of a, of, of a connection with. And one of the things that I have now included with roll-ups is just putting a weight in every athlete's hands and making them walk on their big toes with those knees tremendously flexed. Another one of those things that is a good follow-up from roll-ups to get that foot function optimal, right? It's the only place that we very briefly, thousands of times have impact on the road. And that's, that structure better work for anything else up the chain to even remotely have a chance of operating functionally. Yeah, no, well said. And, you know, I would uh, finish with this. When it comes to cadence, give yourself that time. I mentioned the junior elite. He's more like a sponge. He's younger. He hasn't done as much uh, a lifetime of running as long as somebody like myself, where I expected it to take a little bit longer, a few a few months as opposed to a few weeks to probably get the same type of effect. So just want to point that out is be patient with the process, especially if you've been uh, working on something like this just for a few weeks that may need to be on repeat a while longer and you will end up feeling that effect as i mentioned before things like recovery you can notice that your recovery is now better because you are running with more efficiency as well 
not only just your performance, but uh, looking at stride and finishing, I guess, with that, when you see the numbers there, those are things you can measure. So uh, although I know that we don't always use things like stride in our programming with all athletes, I think going back to what your discussion was with the marathoner, it's well worth it to have those measurements there, at least so that you have a blueprint for uh, now and in the future on what's actually working for you. And so although uh, they're not like a sponsor of the show, I have Stride myself. I'm not a big tech person, but it is useful data for me. Fantastic. Thanks, Matt. You know, we're always ribbing each other, right, about various things. So at your expense, I'm going to share a little joke that you and I had over the week. I sent Matt a little infinity loop, and inside the infinity loop was, I'll end with this. <laughs> so a good little fun. So Matt, thanks again, man. It's just always great working with you. And I, I feel, you know, our connection is is so much, so much greater than just uh, the, the two bodies of knowledge that we bring together synergistically to, to help folks run better. Always good to speak with you, my friend, and uh, look forward to the next time. You as well. Thank you, Bobby. As always, thanks for listening to the RunForm podcast. And as a reminder, we offer a totally free movement improvement assessment on our Pandola Project website. Here, you can get your own personalized protocol that will help your running today. So give that a try. Also, Bobby and I are experts on any question app where you can ask us, well, any question. So reach out to us directly there. Finally, if you learned anything new today, don't forget to share it with your compadres and leave us a quick review. That really helps us a lot. All the links you need are in the show notes below. Till next time, have a great run. Well, that was that was awesome. Yeah.